Will you be editing this? Yes. Yeah. I okay. I I never used to, but I found that it is incredibly um, rewarding for the end product to edit. So yeah, it's not going out live, thankfully, because otherwise people would see all my shoes and stuff, which I don't want them to see. Um, Maybe if you don't want to talk, you could just listen. is happening i am mal foster and you are listening to the long awaited long over well hang on am i being a little bit too full of myself is it really long awaited have people been clamoring for this whatever it's long overdue that's for sure whatever your level of anticipation for this it doesn't change the fact that this is in fact the season four premiere of dined out and yeah it has been a long time coming for a lot of reasons i had to take some downtime i just had to before I could get myself into this. I learned my lessons with the last season, burning myself out, doing too much all at once, spinning too many plays. Not good for me, not good for you, so don't do it. Um, Take some time, take some time for yourself, that's what I say. Nonetheless, it is a brand new season, and it is a season I am very much looking forward to presenting to you, dear beloved listeners. It is very varied and eclectic, and uh, yeah, I mean... The previous seasons have been both of those things. In fact, really, that's one of the things that I kind of pride this show on being, is varied and eclectic. But this season, it feels maybe a little bit more so. It feels like we're kind of stretching even further afield with some of the guests and some of the topics. I'll probably chat to you guys at the back end of this episode about some of the things you might be able to expect in this season. Give you maybe just a little bit of a preview of what's coming down the pipe in the forthcoming weeks. But for now, I kind of want to jump into this conversation that I'm about to play you. We're kicking the season off with an absolutely fantastic guest, a real get for the show. Dr. Daryl Ray is a man of many dimensions. He is a psychologist. He's an author of many notable works. He is a complete fountain of knowledge in a lot of different areas. He has got a cracking wit. He's just a lovely fella. And he's also a fantastic conversationalist. Now, as you can see from the title of this episode, we're going to be talking about recovering from religion, both the actual thing, recovering from religion, and the international non-profit that uh, was founded by Dr. Daryl Ray. Now, a quick synopsis, a quick summary, a quick explanation, as it were, of what recovering from religion is, verbatim from their Google pull-up, is they are an international non-profit organisation that helps people who have left or are in the process of leaving religion, or are dealing with problems arising from doubt or non-belief. So, pretty self-explanatory what they do, but we're going to kind of dig into it in much more detail within the conversation. Before we get there, though, a couple of things. One, I know fine well that religion is a bit of a hot-button topic, to say it mildly. Especially where I'm located here in the South, in Texas, it's, it is a huge part of people's lives. And uh, I get that, and I fully understand that religion has been a benefit to a lot of people over the years, but I really am not a fan. That is not a particularly well-hidden secret, I am quite open about that. I really don't care for religion. As I said, I do understand it has its benefits to some people, sure, but one of the things that we don't really tend to talk about, 
because I don't know, maybe it's seen as a taboo. Maybe it's just something people don't want to talk about because they don't want to admit that freely is that religion can also be extremely carcinogenic, especially when it's pushed upon people that really don't have a choice. When it's a lifestyle that is tailored to people that don't have the wherewithal or the ability to say no or make up their own mind. It's, yeah, it's something I'm not a fan of. And it's something that can be, as I say, very carcinogenic, very corrosive to a person's upbringing and well-being. And yeah, it's something that we just don't generally talk about in society as a whole. Not as much as we should be doing. But uh, we're about to pop the top off of that conversation with Dr. Daryl Ray in just a moment. The second thing that I want to explain on less of a serious note is that this episode takes place in my wardrobe. And there's a good reason for that, there really is, and it was the fact that at the time of recording there was a lot of construction work going on outside. Now, despite the soundproofing I have over at the desk, there was still a lot of noise leaking through, and I didn't know how long it was going to last, so I kind of had to do a last-minute hustle into the, the wardrobe, the closet, whatever you want to call it, and turn that into a sort of makeshift, on-the-fly, improvised studio of sorts. So I'm talking to this very highly esteemed, well-respected professional about a very serious topic. And uh, yeah, he can see my shoes, he can see <laughs> folded t-shirts. Um, yeah, not exactly the best environment, but sometimes you just got to make do. Thankfully, as I said before, he's got a cracking wit and he took it all in good stride with a good sense of humour. So yeah, that's uh, that's just, just out there for you, for you to know a little little glimpse into how the audio sausage is made. Anyway, let's get into it. This is my conversation with Dr. Daryl Ray. We're talking trauma, we're talking religion, we're talking purity culture, we're talking about a lot of heavy, dense, life-changing subjects. And uh, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoy this as much as I did. Well, first and foremost, thank you very much for joining me today, Daryl. Glad to be here, Well, and uh, looking forward to this topic and conversation. <laughs> me too, me too. It's something I've been looking forward to sort of diving into for some time, and you very much seem the person to, to go to to talk to about this, for sure. Um, we're going to be discussing a number of things. The core thing that we're going to be looking at here is religious trauma. But what I want to do is for anybody that has maybe never heard this term, who is maybe unfamiliar with what it is, uh, kind of get a basic sort of explanation as to what religious trauma is, and then we can kind of go beyond the surface and kind of dig into it a little bit deeper from there. Well, I'm going to start uh, a little different than going straight to religious trauma, sure. because I think it's important for us to basically understand what trauma is. Sure, absolutely. You can't really move to religious trauma until you understand trauma. Right. And let me go way back to the U.S. Civil War, after that war, people came home, changed, and mm -hmm. the, there was a term they called it "soldier's heart" uh, in in civil U.S. Civil War, and then later, World War One, soldiers came back, changed, and yeah. they they couldn't function. They were, they had, they couldn't reintegrate back into society. They couldn't sleep. They had nightmares, and this went on for decades for these people that came back from World War One. And it happened in the Brit British uh, to British soldiers, had sure German soldiers, happened mm -hmm. to French soldiers, and symptom the symptoms were similar, if not the same, and they called that shell shock. Mm -hmm. And then World War II comes along, 
and they after the war they see the same thing and they called that battle fatigue uh, but there was a lot of judgment, a lot of moral moralizing around it. Well, they just came back. They're lazy. They don't want to work. You know, they don't, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that kind of moralizing was all that we had at the time because psychology and psychiatry simply didn't understand trauma. Right. So um, along comes Korean War, same thing. Vietnam War, same thing. But uh, Iran-Iraq War and the United States uh, – by that time, the science was starting to get there. Right. And men were coming back from seeing their buddies blown up by an IED and massive change in behavior and, and inability to relate to other people, sleep. And the symptoms were all there. Same symptoms from the Civil War, World War I, World War II. Mm-hmm. This time, we had things like the MRI scans to look at the brain, to, to examine the behavior much more in much greater detail. And that led to um, what we now know as post-traumatic stress disorder. Everybody knows about PTSD these days, and nobody right. nobody would argue that it's a real thing. And yet, you know, in World War One, they were arguing whether it's a real thing or not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're just lazy. They're you know they they went over and they had too much fun in France, and now they 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 don't want to work. I, you know, those kinds of moralizing things are what formerly happened, but now we have science. So we can agree, and I hope your audience can agree, that there is such a thing as PTSD. Absolutely. And the beautiful thing is, as a result of the, of the research, the science, we now know that PTSD is, and this is the, this is the underlying theme I want to have today sure. now, and that is it is a change in the brain. Right. Trauma is a change in the brain. Now, it may be a change that happened when you're very young. Or it could be happening after a war, but it's still a change in the brain, meaning the brain is rewired or wired in a way that is dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. It just like your car, you know, if you short circuit something out, your car not going to run as well, may not run at all. And that's what's happening in the brain. It gets short circuited for very good reasons. I mean, it's not (laughs) it's there's something going on there. Right. That's what we're going to talk about here today. So fast forward 10 more years after the first uh, Iraq war, uh, I'm sorry, the second Iraq war, and Dr. Marlene Winnell, who wrote a book back in 1995 called The Journey, um, I I just forgot the title, (laughs) but Dr. Marlene Winnell, she wrote uh, Journey Free. Uh, She has an organization she calls Journey Free, and uh, she coined the term about 10 years ago, religious trauma, because just like the soldiers coming back from wars, she was seeing people who had left religion displaying symptoms that looked a lot like PTSD. And yet this person had never been in a war. They weren't, they didn't see anybody get blown up. They weren't You're a right. civilian in Syria. So it was, it was a revelation and she named it. And we're, I'm forever grateful to Dr. Winnell for having named this thing that she kept seeing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem to matter. Somebody who leaves Jehovah's Witnesses, somebody who leaves Mormonism, somebody who leaves Catholicism, mm-hmm. Southern Baptist. There's, it, is, it is a trauma that comes from, from the early experience, oftentimes in childhood. But it also is a trauma that can happen as a result of, of the disfellowshipping, the shunning, the treatment of people you thought loved you. That can be traumatic too. Mm-hmm. So as we move into understanding what religious trauma is, 
we all understand that that soldier coming back from the war wasn't traumatized by a childhood experience. However, sometimes you can have multiple traumas or multiple sources of a trauma. Mm-hmm. And some, some experts are calling that complex PTSD. Complex PTSD simply means the source is multiple. Right. And so the soldier comes back. They don't have CP, uh, complex PTSD because we know the source and we can work with that. And we've got incredibly good techniques and technologies now for helping uh, victims of trauma from, from war or other kinds of victims. Right. However, let's say you're victimized by a religion. Mm-hmm. That at three years old you're beat for having you're beaten for having touched yourself uh, sexually, you know, mm-hmm. which every child does, of course. Right. Yeah. Or you were harassed and because of your uh, gender fluidity, because you didn't fit into a particular gender uh, binary, perhaps. Or you were told since you were, you can remember that you were going to hell if you had bad thoughts, which you, of course everybody has bad thoughts. Yeah. So you've got all these things going on, and. You, you have the threat of being isolated, of being shunned, of being thrown out, or you've seen, you've seen your brother or your sister or your friends shunned, thrown out, abused by the religion when you're growing up, and you realize, well, that could happen to me too. Mm-hmm. Just like a soldier who themselves were not killed or injured by a bomb, if they saw a friend get killed by an IED, they were perfectly safe. There was no physical harm to them. They still saw their friend get killed. That creates trauma. Yeah. And, and I, I, we need to understand what that then means, but I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. I think it's really good that you've, you've kind of tapped into the fact that there are multiple layers to trauma. It's not just one specific thing. Or like, as you say, in, in some instances, yes, it's one specific incident which leads to trauma, but in other cases, there's a string of, of incidents. I had a fellow on recently who used to work as an EMT, and his uh, PTSD was caused uh, by a string of traumatic incidents that he suffered during that job. And it's interesting because that opened my eyes to the fact that it, it, it isn't just solely based on here's one event. It can be, right. it can be a, a adolescence filled with events. It could be a short period of time two three years filled with events it's got a wide spectrum to it so i think it's really good that you kind of tapped into that it absolutely does have a wide spectrum and that's important to understand now the notion of complex ptsd versus just ptsd mm-hmm. is a little bit controversial and i don't want to um i don't want to lead the audience on but right. there, there's some disagreement within the sure. psychological community about you know it's hard to diagnose we can diagnose the trauma, but what the result and source of the trauma, if it's multiple, you know, that makes it a little more difficult to, to, to diagnose. Right. But, but we can all agree that certain kinds of things can be traumatic. They're not Damn. always, they're not always traumatic. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, if you experience something that could be traumatic, but you have physical resources to go to a doctor, to go get a, get therapy, you might be able to mitigate the potential trauma and never experience the the downsides of that experience. Mm -hmm. But many, many people, as we know, poverty is a great predictor of trauma because somebody who's in poverty does not have the resources to go get psychotherapy. They don't have the resources to go to a doctor and get antidepressants or something like that. So there's two levels of trauma that we're seeing in religious trauma. 
Okay. Uh, and I want to move into talking about sure, that. Yeah. So as I said, it's a change in the brain. And the way that happens is the event or the series of events heighten the alertness of the, of the person to their environment way above what is needed. So, you know, the, we've all heard about the soldier that hears a firecracker on the 4th of July and they hit the right. deck thinking they're being shot at. Yeah. Well, that's an over alertness to their environment or hyper vigilance. It's called hyper vigilance. Okay. And the brain it can be rewired very quickly. He saw his friend get killed by an IED and his brain was almost instantly rewired saying, well, that happened to my br- friend. It could happen to me too. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they're on high alert, much more high alert than they were before. Sure. They went through a training class that said, here's the dangers of IEDs. But until they saw their friend, it wasn't going to cause a, tra- a trauma. Right. So they, their brain is rewired and can happen very rapidly the brain can be so fast rewired so that i mean it's important we've got to be hyper alert if there's ieds around that's pretty rational pretty logical absolutely but the problem is if if the brain gets stuck in the Mm -hmm. hyper alertness and that's what's happening to somebody who has ptsd they their brain does not come back down from the hyper alertness when they when they fly back you know and join their families well, the same thing is true of a child growing up. If, if there's a child in a Southern Baptist family that is terrorized by the fear of hell and sin and sexual ideas as their own body is developing, and they may have been spanked, they may have been made fun of, you know, all these things are much more traumatic to a child than they are to an adult. Right. Because the adult has the psychological resources resilience, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and maybe some physical resources to deal with, a, you know, an, an everyday occurrence that, you know, can happen. Maybe somebody made fun of you and you don't like it, but right. a three-year-old doesn't have the resources for that. They're still very much in that early formative stage yeah, where right. they're still learning what the world is, how it works on Absolutely. various different levels. And if that's what's ingrained into them, that kind of becomes the norm. For right. Their sort of formative right. processing. So let's imagine that you're a three, four, or five-year-old, mm-hmm. and your entire family is is um, believes in Armageddon, believes in the return of Jesus any day, and they're constantly preaching this to you. You don't know what that means. No, uh, you're being told you're going to go to hell because you behaved wrong, or you know, or something like that. Or you go to church and you hear the sermons. You go to Sunday school. You hear the sermon. You read the Bible. You see it. It is all around you. There is no escape mm-hmm. for a five-year-old from this constant terror of being left behind. Because if you come home someday and nobody's here, it might mean we all went to see Jesus and you didn't get to go. I've had so many people tell me that was their fear at five years old. And that's that's an awful thing to instill in the mind of anyone, let alone a child of that age. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And now you've got a child's brain that has been programmed and is hyper alert is on hyper alert to all these abuses that are going on. They don't realize it's abuse. This just no. seems normal. To That's them. it. Yeah. Yeah. Now they grow up and maybe at age 20 or 30 or whatever, this ch- and remember the child's brain is still inside this person. Yeah. At 30 years old, they're still hyper alert. They're still concerned with going to hell. And that's why we it, it recovered from religion, which we'll talk about later. We hear so many people come to us 
saying, I'm still afraid of hell and I've been an atheist for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, I still have nightmares. I still can't sleep. I still, you know, perseverate on certain thinking processes. Well, that tells us there's still some PTSD there, some trauma with them. Now, let's add a layer of trauma to this. Let's say at 30 years old, you finally figure out it's all bullshit. I don't care whether you're a Mormon, a Muslim, a Christian, a Catholic, a Buddhist. You finally figure out whatever it was you were raised in is useless, meaningless, and has bears no resemblance to reality. And you intellectually move, move yourself away from religion. You may even leave religion. Right. That's that's a huge step intellectually. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Most people can leave intellectually, but they can't leave emotionally. Right. Yeah. And so at 10 years later, they're still dealing with the emotion that was caused by the traumatic events of being raised in that community. We can add to a third layer of this trauma. And I, I think it's important to think of this in layers. Absolutely. Yeah. Is a third layer is. Once you say, oh, this is all bullshit, there's nothing out there. It's it's all fantasy. And they tell their family. <laughs> then their family shuns them. Right. Then their family rejects them. Then the people they thought cared for them unconditionally start treating them like crap. And their entire social support network collapses. Sometimes yeah. within hours, the entire network collapses. Mm-hmm. And that is a third level of trauma. Yeah. So we've got three layers of trauma right here. It it, it really does build up. And that's something that I didn't really know that much about because I've fortunately been, uh, my life has been pretty much void of religion growing up. Um, so I've, I, I have no sort of correlation in terms of personal understanding for, for a lot of this, but I do have a lot of sympathy for people that find themselves, especially in that position when they are finding themselves uh, disconnected from what they've grown up with. But at the same time, as you say, find themselves perhaps shunned. When I spoke to a former QAnon follower who had left and was doing her best to try and offer support to other people in similar positions and was finding that because of just how deep the certain allegiances run, they were finding themselves no longer believing in what they believed in terms of following QAnon theories but then finding that they were basically being, as you say, shunned, kind of pushed aside because those closest to them, whether that be spouses, uh, parents, sisters, cousins, or friends that they'd known for decades still did. Yeah. And now they are uh, left trying to navigate a world which is very new to them yeah. all by themselves. So many times people tell us when I left religion, I had to completely start all over, almost mm-hmm. like being an infant, had to learn new skills. I mean, yeah. it, it's... Religion really, really deprives you of the skills and the experiences you need to succeed in the secular world. Mm. And let's face it, much of the planet is secular, especially Mm. in the Western world. So you just don't have those skills. And if you've already been, if you're also traumatized by it, that means you're hypervigilant. You can't sleep. You got nightmares. You don't have any friends to support. You don't know when to talk to. Mm. And that just adds insult to injury. Oh, and then let's add a fourth layer. <laughs> sometimes happens. <laughs> just keep going here. You might you might be wise enough to realize something's wrong here, right. and you go you go to your physician, and they say, "Well, it's all in your head." <laughs> right. Or you go to a psychotherapist who is also Christian, and they say, "Well, you need to pray more." 
So that adds another layer because now you're being blamed for the trauma that was caused by the religion. It's a, it's actually gaslighting, basically. Is that something that you found happens whilst in, in the midst of the, the forming of the trauma of the, the, the the gaslighting of the the sort of framework building the conditioning when people are within particularly childhood and adolescence in religion where what are clearly psychological problems are being passed off as spiritual problems where that you will find people being told well it's it's because you haven't prayed enough it's because you aren't being as devout enough it's because you haven't been reading scripture you haven't Mm -hmm. been going to church Uh, and it kind of just sort of dismisses the psychological clear psychological aspects of what's happening and replaces them with uh, spiritual issues that they are then expected to fix themselves by towing the line i haven't found a religion yet that doesn't use that technique right um i mean let's go to new age stuff a new age person who you know somebody believes in crystals and all Mm-hmm. You, well, you you aren't putting enough faith in your crystals. It's the same thing. Right. You aren't putting enough faith in Jesus. You're not praying enough to Allah. It, it doesn't matter. You are to blame if you are experiencing a mental illness. Mm-hmm. Now, why are you experiencing a mental illness? Because you're, the religion screwed up the way your brain functions and created a, a trauma pattern within your brain, which is a reasonable thing. If you are in a dangerous situation. Yeah. You want to be vigilant, even yeah. hypervigilant. But if you're not in a dangerous situation, you, you want to be able to ramp that down. You want to be able to adjust your brain's patterning and you know response to the environment. But they just can't do that. And the, it's the religion that caused that. And now the religion's blaming them because they can't adjust. And of course, when somebody leaves and they experience depression, they'll say, well, you're depressed because you left Jesus. Right. No, you're depressed because... Everybody, all the assholes in the world are, who call themselves Christians are now saying they don't love you anymore and they're treating you terribly. Mm-hmm. People who you assumed loved you, even people who said they loved you unconditionally, no matter what you said or did, now treat you pretty badly. Right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cause emotional and psychological problems. It's a vicious loop of sorts when you think about it, because it's it's the institutions, it's it's the structure itself, which is which causing the problems and then offering the solution as it were religion gives you the disease and then it uh, tries to sell you you a non a (laughs) non-cure for the disease yeah Uh, i wrote my whole my whole book the god virus is based on that very premise religion is a virus and once it gets in your head it causes all sorts of problems do you find from your experience um and as we've kind of covered it, it does have a wide spectrum and people experience it in various different stages at various different times through various different methods do you find or have you found from your experience that those that have kind of grown up from from birth onwards that have gone through childhood with a very heavy religious presence that those are the people that have the hardest time uh, adjusting and kind of moving out yes the the majority the vast right. majority of people are would fit what you just described yeah. however there's one group of people that also have a hard time. That is uh, the people who may not have been religious at all. They they were raised non-religious or marginally religious. And then at you know 21 years old, their mother gets cancer and goes through a horrible you know phase. Takes three years and finally dies. And the whole family is traumatized by this. Mm-hmm. Well, religion really takes advantage of people in that situation. Yeah. So this 21 year old 
who just lost their mother, father, sister, you know, they themselves are looking for answers and they sure. find religion, a right. specific, whatever religion's walking by that day, that's the one they catch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if they're a, they're in a Muslim community, they're probably going to catch Islam. If they're in a Baptist community, they'll catch Baptist. They never catch a religion that's on the other side of the planet, by the way. Right. It's always the one that's the closest to them. And then they get deeply embedded. Oh, Jesus saved me after my mother died. Right. I was going into a downward spiral. I was taking drugs, you know, or whatever. They'll have their story. Mm-hmm. And Jesus saved me. So now for 10 years, they are in this religion. And then one day they wake up and they say, yeah. wow, this is built on nothing. And those people can leave because they weren't raised religious. They can intellectually leave a little easier, but the emotional piece is just as strong, it seems to me. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting situation. People that find it later in life through a traumatic event that kind of cracks open a real raw sense of vulnerability, which that mm-hmm. void is then filled by, as you say, whatever seems to kind of come into contact and becomes almost like their con- convenient savior of that yeah, time. It yeah. is. It is. If you put a person under stress enough, mm-hmm. you can change their behavior permanently. You can change their personality permanently. And, of course, now what we know is that constant pressure of stress, which is what this 21-year-old is going through, perhaps, right. that leads to the hypervigilance, that leads to the fear of lo- the loneliness, the fear of death. And religion takes advantage of it because religion comes along and says, I mean, what human isn't afraid of dying? You know? right. I'm, I'm not afraid of being dead. I'm more afraid of dying because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> once I'm dead, it's no big deal. Right. You don't know about it. <laughs> I don't know about it. I didn't know it before <laughs> I was born. I didn't know it after. <laughs> but we're all afraid of dying. So religion comes along and takes advantage of that mm-hmm. and does something. Uh, Catholics, Baptists, you know, all the, all the patriarchal religions do a great job with this. And that includes that includes Buddhists and Islam. And they what they do is they create what I call death neurosis. And, uh, uh, you know, there it's an un um, it's an unnecessary and over over response to the notion of death. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm not afraid of death. That'd be a lie. Right. But I'm not overly afraid of it. I know I'm going to die someday. It's mm-hmm. just a fact. I know you're going to die someday. Yeah. Hopefully you'll die after I die. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the fact is. I can say that out loud, but people who've got death neurosis, the very thought of them dying creates a rush in them. They can't say the words. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know it, I have, I have a, a relative that I, I'm very close to. And when I one day went to them and sat down and talked about my will and they're involved in my trust and all, it was, it was almost traumatic for them, for me to talk about my death. <laughs> right. They, they're very religious and they mm-hmm. can't, they're scared to death of death. Well, that's just, that's irrational. It's illogical. I want to enjoy my life now, but if you're afraid of death all the time, you can't enjoy your life now. Mm-hmm. So it creates a neurosis and religion really takes advantage of, of our fear of death to create a neurotic fear of death, which yeah. is an excessive yeah. fear of death. Now, whether that that's probably related to religious trauma as well. It's just another face of religious trauma. Right. It's just another way it manifests itself. Exactly. To, to me, from from my 
understanding and it's it's pretty interesting my perspective as i say not having lived in a religious background at all but living in a, a part of the country which is very deeply rooted in its identity uh, with with religion i've kind of had my eyes opened to the way people see things and the way people more to the point behave or don't behave as it were there's a lot of people that tend to talk the talk but don't actually yeah. practice what they preach pun intended yeah. <laughs> as it were <laughs> but for, from my perspective it seems very much that there is a, a, a real sort of neurosis around death and the aftermath of death and for yeah. me it seems that religion has very much become almost an insurance policy where it's like you will get this payout after you if you if you yeah, die when right. you die but you have to uh follow these certain t's and c's terms and conditions to get that payout yeah and, oh and by the way you got to pay 10 percent of your uh... yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the policy is only good if you pay 10 percent of your earnings <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it is it's quite a scam i i agree we we could add into that i should have mentioned that fear of hell is probably the central central feature of the death process but we find fear of hell we find fear of hell in some of the weirdest places Mm. we get hindus that are afraid of hell we get Mm. buddhists that are afraid of hell and they don't you know we get jews that are afraid of hell and judaism doesn't even have a hell you know (laughs) so what's happened within our culture is the religious ideology of christianity has has really spread over the world right and the notion of hell, which probably comes from Zoroastrianism about 1000 BCE and then leaked into Judaism late in the third century, maybe the second century CE, uh, BCE rather, uh, and, then, and then became a part of Christianity and also be, then became a part of Islam, mm-hmm. has now spread to other places like Hinduism and, uh, and Buddhism. I write in the God virus that religions are a virus and they spread like a virus the covid virus spread all over the planet Mm -hmm. well hell is a meme and a meme spreads like a virus and it has spread all over the planet so now we get people expressing fear of hell which is another word for fear of death right because that's really kind of what's going on there yeah then uh who who don't even have that in their theology it's it's kind of funny to see that. It's kind of redundant. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Because it's like if it's not even in in the in the text that you are following, then then why are you following the the ideal of this, the the, the concept that this is a thing? Well, it's because it has pervaded our culture. Right. And and I I know you wanted to talk about purity culture, and this yeah. would be a good transition to Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Because purity culture comes straight out of um, is uh, Judaism and early Christianity and yeah. notions, you know, crazy notions about what sex and sexuality is. Mm-hmm. But that same child that we've been talking about, who at three to five years old is surrounded by this fear of hell stuff, when their body starts developing and eight, nine, ten, they start developing, you know, secondary sexual characteristics, body hair, and and uh, you know, they start having wet dreams and growing breasts and things. They're they're then starting to be told, oh, but your sexuality is your enemy. Your body is your enemy. Eve ate of the fruit. Eve was the evil person. Girls are second-class citizens. Women Mm -hmm. should never talk in church. I mean, the the messages are just incessant. Yeah. And there's probably twice as many 
incessant negative messages to girls and women as there right. are to men, especially yeah. in a patriarchal religion. Absolutely. Which, which virtually all the major religions are, which all the major religions are. Don't let anybody fool you about Buddhism. Oh, no. It's very patriarchal. So purity culture has, has now kind of spread across the planet. And we even have some evidence, uh, rather dramatic evidence of it in India. When the Mughals uh, first invaded India from the north and conquered much of north and central India, at that time, this was almost a thousand years ago, mm-hmm. at that time, the Hindu religion was pretty damn sex positive. Right. And if you go back a thousand years before that, it was even more sex positive. It became more and more sex negative, but more and more male oriented. Let's put it that way, unless, right. yeah. less e- equal. But you can tell this by looking at the at the temples. I mean, there's all sorts of erogenous stuff on the temples in India. Mm-hmm. There's stuff on the frescoes, uh, on the boss release, on those Indian temples that is pornographic by their own definition. <laughs> And and you would get put in jail for producing porn, pornography that looked anything like what was on their own oh, temples. Yeah. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> so what happened was Islam, with its incredibly patriarchal, male-dominated, sex-negative view of sexuality, came in through the Mughals, conquered much of northern to central India, and imposed the purity culture of yeah. Islam on Hinduism, a, a, a purity culture that did not exist or didn't exist nearly to the degree right. in India, to the degree that in southern India, it's hot. It's, it's, you know, it's close to the equator. And women didn't wear tops. It was just their culture. You know, lots mm-hmm. of cultures were a top. They didn't wear tops until the mu- Muslims got there. When the Muslims got there, they basically said, you know, better, better dress yourself or we're going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't. Those women did not become Muslims, but they did dress. They did cover right. themselves up. So that's purity culture. That's just a great example of purity culture overwhelming another culture. And what yeah. we've seen here in the last 20, 30 years, I mean, I'm a child of the 60s. I'm a hippie, okay? I remember when birth control was first available in the early 60s. My mother was just delighted and excited. Oh, now we can have... My mother, who was fairly fundamentalist, was excited she could have sex without getting worried about. She had four boys, and uh, she didn't want any more. <laughs> she didn't want five or six boys, I don't no. think. <laughs> so I I know that with the advent of birth control and the availability of, of abortion, that the culture really changed away from this Christian purity culture, mm-hmm. then you see the purity culture coming back with a vengeance from the fundamentalists and evangelicals. Yeah. Uh, so we're seeing it all over the United States now. Is is the, the core mission of purity culture to instill fear into to young women? You make a really good point. Like I feel from what I know, and it's, to be honest, it's, it is pretty little, but it is something that fascinates me again because it's from an outsider's perspective. But it does seem like obviously it does have an effect on the way that young men raised within it behave, because it does increase a sense of uh, strongholds for patriarchal communities and like a streak of misogyny that is seemed socially, culturally acceptable within men. But for women, it seems tenfold worse because they have all the expectations, all the restrictions, all the parameters, 
all the things that they need to avoid. And to me, it seems like it's a method of controlling and based through fear, which you could argue is is pretty much the MO for religion as a whole. But Well, as I, as I argue in my book, Sex and God, mm-hmm. which is the main theme, which we're just talking about right now, is that re- religions learned, many religions learned about somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 years ago. It, it, there was a switch. There was a change. And it was a new idea that you, if you can control people's sexuality, then you can control people. Right. And I mean, the, the dramatic, um, one of the dramatic effects of that was say, you know, going clear back to eunuchs, you know, if you just castrate a male and you control his sexuality. Right. Well, that's a pretty dramatic way to yeah. control sexuality. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Please don't come near me with that knife. <laughs> but that's just a radical example. Mm-hmm. Now you move fast forward a, a, few, a thousand years or so with Hinduism and, and with Islam, and you start getting uh, other, other ideas around, well, Judaism, for example. Controlling, controlling your sexuality is a key part of all of Judaism, especially controlling women's sexuality. But controlling men's sexuality begins at eight days old when they cut the foreskin off of the yeah. male child. That is general mutilation. Yeah, and absolutely. It's, it's, it's a way to start controlling men. And then men turn around and control women. Mm-hmm. And the Bible is full of stuff about, you know, you can stone your daughter to death if she's not a virgin when she gets married. Lots of stuff like that. Mm. And that just gets carried over into the New Testament. And of course, most of the religions of that day were fairly patriarchal and male dominated. So even, I mean, the Romans thought the Jews were nuts. And of course they were at the time, but I mean, they, they thought Jews were, were crazy because they had multiple wives. Polygamy Mm -hmm. was not a big deal. Herod had 15 wives. The Herod in the Bible had 15 wives. Now, I, here's the question. Have you seen anywhere in the Bible that Jesus condemned Herod for having 15 wives? No, I'm aware of. No, huh? And, and polygamy was a very, very common, especially yeah. among wealthy Jews. It was polygamy, going clear back to King Solomon and David. They all had lots of wives. Nobody's condemning anybody for having lots of wives. Right. It's a very patriarchal notion, of course, being mm-hmm. polygamous. But... Uh, <laughs> It's kind of it's kind of funny that the Romans thought the Jews were nuts for having all these wives because the Romans only had one wife. Mm-hmm. Now they may have a bunch of concubines, they may have some <laughs> side lovers, but you can only have one wife. Right. <laughs> and if you don't like her, you could divorce her and marry somebody else. I mean, we saw we see this in Roman history, but it's just a very different take. And what happened with Christianity was Christianity eventually adopted more a more roman approach to marriage mm-hmm. and uh, and relationships that you can only have one wife at a time so to speak i i could go on and on there's that's a whole nother historical perspective but but this whole purity culture thing mal is just it, it's just become insidious and yeah. we're te- teaching girls and women horrible ideas about mm-hmm. their sexuality absolutely and we're entitling boys to some really bad behavior. That's that's where I, I well, I mean, there's danger from both sides. You know, there's there's danger in crippling uh, young women's self-esteem and sense of identity and and personal uh, self-worth. But yeah, 
uh, in terms of the other side, yeah, it's it's teaching young men that it's perfectly fine to behave in atrocious manners and to to sort of objectify and and mistreat women as well, essentially. Well, if they really are being raised in purity culture, there's quite a bit of restrictions on the boys as well. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking in terms of they're not being taught basic ideas about relationships. No. Now, I'm not I'm not excusing the misogyny. The whole religion's nothing but one gigantic misogynist bullshit mess. Yeah. <laughs> but uh that I'm not excusing. I'm just saying that some men, some boys are are taking the lesson and becoming strongly misogynistic. Mm-hmm. But most boys who are going through purity culture are taking the lesson seriously and they're they're trying not to masturbate. They're trying not to think about sex, which is absurd. What right. for, when I was thirteen, that was all I thought about. That's all <laughs> your brain wants to do is think about sex when you're thirteen. Right. And then they're then they're being condemned. The boys especially are being condemned for masturbating. Right. And they have entire books. I'm sorry to say, uh, entire books teaching boys how to uh, how to resist the masturbation need or effort or ideas and that is traumatizing to boys because it absolutely it it separates them from their body right their body is their enemy the same lesson for girls your body is your enemy and so you end up praying to jesus to not masturbate which is kind of weird, I think. You know? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really <laughs> weird, to be honest. I did a talk. I, I've done this talk several times over the years. It's, <laughs> the title of the talk is, Did Jesus Masturbate? <laughs> uh, I don't need to say anything else. <laughs> uh, yeah. If he, was, quote, if he was, quote, fully human, then hell yeah, he masturbated. Yeah. 99% of all children <laughs> are going to masturbate. There's nothing wrong with the one child that's asexual, never has a sex drive, doesn't isn't interested. Nothing wrong with that. I, mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me on that. But most children, teenagers especially, the hormones are going crazy. They got to do something with that energy. It's just natural biological progression, and I feel yeah. like by by teaching children, <laughs> you know, that it is one of the worst things you could be doing, is such a hindrance on that natural progression. It is. And then when you think that the adults that are teaching them that didn't do it themselves. Right. They had sex before marriage. They masturbated like teens when they were 14 years yeah, of age. It's just they felt guilty of, about it. More layers of hypocrisy. Oh, yeah. It is. it's it is. And the preacher that's standing up there with his trophy wife, you know, preaching all sorts of things to people mm-hmm. is probably banging the choir director and a few <laughs> other people. I mean, we see this over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah. And and part of the reason we don't know it's happening as much is because it's not illegal. Right. <laughs> and, and I don't really care how many lovers a preacher has. What I care about is he's, he's telling people one thing and he's doing something quite different. When I was growing up, we had eight different examples, eight different preachers. And I lived in Wichita, Kansas, but eight different ministers got caught having affairs. Wow. And most of them did not get fired over it. They no, had they, to have a second or a third affair before they finally got fired. Right. And as as we've seen come to light in, in recent history, you know, uh, something that's been exposed, this has been going on for God knows how long. When they do um, commit these, uh, in certain instances, crimes, when you're talking about younger members of, of communities and, and, and clergies, etc., they're, they're not apprehended by the law. They're not fired. They're just hidden away, moved somewhere else, and it's yep. swept under the rug. 
and yep. that you know for for all the uh the fire and brimstone teaching and and sort of uh, death neurosis that's instilled in people's brains you would think that would be pretty high on the list of things you should definitely not be doing <laughs> because you won't be going to heaven if you do that yeah i always uh say that if if the person that has the most jesus in them can't resist the temptation then why the hell do they expect everybody else to <laughs> yeah i mean the the minister is the one with the most jesus he should be able but yeah. their, their excuses and i always hear this they always got an excuse for the minister you know well he was he he's tempted a lot more than the rest of the people well yeah because he's the alpha male and the alpha male's always got women mm-hmm. wanting to want to have mm-hmm. sex with him and the fact is, if you look at the way we primates operate, alpha males generally get more females than non-alpha males. It's mm-hmm. just pretty simple. Whether you're a chimpanzee or a, or a gorilla, um, a baboon, it's not true of bonobos. They're a different. They're different, but we we have a lot of those kind of characteristics in us. Absolutely. So if you get a minister up front preaching to five thousand people, he tends to have groupies around him. Right. And those groupies oftentimes have a lot of women, and those women are turned on by him. They will never admit it, but they are. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he finds one or two or seven that he likes, and uh, he takes advantage of the situation. It's, I guess it's a case of establishing and exerting a sense of, of power, which obviously um, any, any structure that sort of enables and enhances any sort of patriarchal rule is gonna gonna have that front and center, and it's a weird comparison. But you look at Charles Manson, you know, yep. it's, it's a similar thing. Look how well, many young women flock to him, or David yep. Koresh. Right, you can name every major figure. Um, Jeff Jeff Jeffers, mm. the the fundamentalist Mormon. Uh, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young. Joseph Smith had thirty eight wives. Brigham Young had fifty two or more wives. We don't know exactly how many. But clearly, there's something about being the alpha male makes them feel entitled yeah. to to multiple sex partners, even right. as they're telling you uh, everybody else, you cannot do that. Right. The alpha male always bends the rules. Now, some alpha males don't make excuses. I mean, Genghis Khan didn't make any excuses. Hey, I no. run the place, so I'll have as many right. wives as I want. Uh, but, uh, but you know, that's not true in Christianity, where the alpha males have to play this game on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go on and on about that, but that's <laughs> the anthropology, the psychology, the sociology, the biology of all this is fascinating. Oh, absolutely. But Mal, when you look at it from a perspective of us as a species and that behavior, it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. There's nothing mysterious about why the guy up there in front of 5,000 people is having affairs with multiple women. Then, that he preaches against. That's not mysterious. That's just alpha primate behavior, mm-hmm. period. I, I think a lot of that kind of gets excused as well by those that are kind of under the umbrella of, of uh, fellowship. Because for me, the, the, the sort of the core root of, of why religion kind of affects people and grabs people and, and has had such a deep impact is because it's selling certainty in a world of uncertainty. You know, I think one of the things that human beings collectively, no matter what you follow, what you believe, uh, what you've grown up with, we are all frightened of the unknown because there are so many variables. And I feel like what religion does as a whole and its main sort of uh, bread and butter for its its marketplace is selling you answers. We know. We know. We, we sell you the certainty. 
and that will cure you from from fearing what happens it's pretending to know what you don't really know yeah that's what i believe um, uh peter bogosian uh, likes to say yeah philosopher, uh, philosopher. That, that really sort of narrows it down and nails it yeah yeah because um they don't know and yet they're no. pretending like they actually do and that preacher up there's spouting all sorts of shit he doesn't know right <laughs> but he does it in a very convincing way <laughs> that's it yeah yeah but because there's conviction behind that not knowing uh, people will buy into that yeah right right well i would like but i know before we're finished i would like to talk a little bit about recovering from religion absolutely i was and... going to ask you i wanted to segue into that so yes sure what is okay. recovering from religion well we are we are an organization that's been around for uh, 12 years now we just celebrated our 12th anniversary in april wow um congratulations and, well, thank you. And we're very happy to have yeah. been around that long. <laughs> we started back in 2009. And we're here to provide hope, healing, and support for people who are dealing with any kind of issue around doubt or non-belief. Mm-hmm. So in, from any religion anywhere on the planet, we have a chat line. We have a phone line. We have uh, online groups that can meet. We have an online community that you can join, but they have to come through us to join it. Right. And we've got uh, all sorts of, we've got an enormous library of resources. We have resources for ex-Mormons. We have resources for ex-Muslims. We have resources for ex-Baptists. You name the religion, we got a resource for you. Uh, we're probably a little thin on the Buddhist side and Hindu side, but we're, we're strengthening that. It, it's building, of course. Mm-hmm. And we have a chat line where anybody, any of your listeners, if they're dealing with yeah. issues, they can just go to recoveringfromreligion.org, hit the button, and talk to a well-trained volunteer. They're, they're not therapists, but they're a well-trained volunteer, mm-hmm. and they will help you find the resources you need to reestablish your life outside of religion if that's what you're trying to do. Right. However, we aren't here to convert or deconvert. Right. If you want to find another religion, this. we'll help you find another religion. Right. <laughs> we are not... We're not here to tell you what you should or shouldn't do with your life. Yeah, I wanted to touch on that and make that a very clear distinction that you guys are not a deconversion therapy project, that you are an open source platform to to lend people uh, the help they need or direct them to the places that are going to be beneficial to them. And we train our volunteers very, very carefully on that count. In fact, that's one thing that will get you in trouble if you try to convert or deconvert somebody. Right. We're just not into that at all. We have a strong belief that people have to make their own decisions in life. Yeah, Religion does not believe that. Religion wants to give you the decisions and say you have to follow them. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're here to help you. And one of the ways we're going to help you is helping you make your own decision. Right. If you want to go back to your religion, that's your decision. If you want to go to a different religion, that's your decision. Uh, a lot of people do leave a fundamentalist religion and then find something that's more liberal. Yeah. Uh, or they may find a new age religion. They may become Buddhist. We don't care. You've only got one life to live. Absolutely. Live it your best way. And that's that's what we want to help you do. We also have another uh, component recovered from religion called the Secular Therapy Project. Okay. And it consists of about 500 registered therapists who use evidence-based methods. They're not religious and they're not going to put religion on you. Right. In that's and a good thing to, to sort of clarify as well, I think. Yeah. For people yeah. that are looking to to move away from that and are looking for more clinical, psychological based. Yes. If you're there. if if you go to a therapist and they believe in magical thinking, they're mm-hmm. a ter- they're probably a terrible therapist. <laughs> yeah. And I mean by magical thinking, they believe people rise from the dead. Right. They be- 
if you go to a person who's a Christian counselor, I don't care how many degrees they got behind their name, if they still believe that in hell, if they still believe that religion, that there's some God they can talk to through a thing called prayer or, or whatever they call it, then they're probably not as good a therapist as they could be. Right. And they're probably going to be pretty poor at helping you deal with religious trauma, if that's what you come yeah. to them for. Yeah. Exactly. Our therapists know what religious trauma is, and they know probably most of them are well-trained in how to treat that kind of, of thing. So those are, uh, those are a lot of the programs. Every Monday night, we have something we call RFRX, and it's usually a really highly qualified speaker on a wide variety of topics related to psychology, psychology, religion, religious trauma, religious uh, deconversion, neuropsychiatry, psychology, all those things we talk about every Monday night. All of those talks have been archived and they're oh, available wow. on our channel on YouTube. So if you're an ex-Mormon really? and you want to go hear what an ex-Mormon had to say, you can go in there. If you want to hear what I have to say about sexuality after religion, you can go find my talk in there. Just as a nice little titillating <laughs> <laughs> in a, almost a literal sense. <laughs> Uh, last week, we had Erin Lewis on. She's a former stripper and animal entertainer. She's written a book called Expose Yourself, which I've read. It's a great book. It's hilarious, by the way. I had no idea that you could learn so much about life from a stripper. <laughs> and she's really, she's really funny. And she's really articulate about the similarities between the, the judgmentalness of, say, being a stripper and judgment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Certain preconceptions. That's that's something that I think is absolutely wonderful. You touch on something that I really, really do sort of try and channel into most things I do. And that is that, you know, as far as we know, because nobody knows anything for certain at all. But as far as we know, we only have one life. And the best thing to do is live it, but to live it openly and to sort of take in other people's stories, experiences, and, Mm -hmm. you know, just learn more about just so much because there's so much out there mm-hmm. and it will be doing yourself a disservice if you kind of didn't right i did do a talk uh kind of go clear back to our first subject religious trauma i did a talk with lloyd evans who's a big joe's witness ex joe's witness mm-hmm. uh, podcaster and if if your audience is interested in a very very detailed discussion of religious trauma you might look up lloyd yeah. evans and my name and uh, it'll come right up but I think it's gotten like 50,000 views or something. It's phenomenal how many people have watched it. What I'm going to do, Daryl, is I'm going to put links to everything that you've mentioned in the show notes so people can can pick and choose. And if something that pings on somebody's radar and they're like, definitely want to check that out, there will be links for them to go and do that um, and and check out that. And there will also be links to the Secular Project and to Recovering from Religion as well for anybody to just look at and familiarize themselves with because even if you are not, and hopefully it's the case. Hopefully you are not suffering from any sense of religious trauma that you have kind of managed to live a life void of that. Um, but you may know somebody or you may encounter somebody in the future. It's a good thing to sort of familiarize yourself with and have in the back of your head in case someday you have a conversation where this comes up and somebody mentions something, you can pull that to them and, and offer that to them as a, a platform to go investigate. I totally, I totally agree. You may not ever need us, but you probably know somebody that does. Yeah. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Um, anything else that we've missed that you want to cover before we go, Daryl? I, I just encourage people to look at my books, The God Virus and Sex and God. 
both deal with the very subjects we've talked about here today. If you're interested in more information on Journey Free, go to journeyfree.org, I think it is, Dr. Marlene Winnell, the the founder of the whole notion of religious trauma. Other than that, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Mal. Hey, no problem. I appreciate you taking the time out and uh, and, uh, talking with me. All right, gang, so there you go. That was my conversation in the wardrobe with the wonderful Dr. Daryl Ray. He wasn't in the wardrobe with me. That would have been just a completely different level of awkward. But as I said at the top of the show, he took that all in in good grace uh, whilst I kind of had to improvise. I genuinely love that conversation, and I feel like I could have talked to to Daryl for a lot longer. Like I felt like there is a lot of extra places we could have gone with that conversation, and uh, maybe, hopefully, if he even remembers having the conversation, because it was done like over a year ago at the time of release, um, maybe he'd want to come back and kind of explore some of those places we, we didn't get into with in, this conversation. In the meantime, do go check out Recovering From Religion. It is recoveringfromreligion.org. There will be a link in the show notes, along with a bunch of other links to Daryl's stuff for you to go and check out, which I highly recommend you do. As I said at the top, he is just a just an absolute fountain of knowledge and just a fascinating person. So, yeah, if you've enjoyed this, please do dig deeper into to what he offers and has got out there for you to, to dive into. If you take a look in the show notes, you will also find links to our stuff. You can find our Facebook page for Dined Out, the YouTube channel, the Twitter and Instagram profiles, which if you've got those to handy right now, you can just go to at I am Mal Foster. Yeah, give us a like. Uh, follow, check out what we're doing, get in touch, whether it's about the topic discussed in this episode, previous episodes, if you've got suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear those as well. Speaking of, I did tease at the top of this episode that I'd be giving you a little bit of a preview of what you can expect with the rest of this season, and little preview is the the key phrase here, because I don't want to give too much away. But in the coming weeks, some of the guests and topics that you can expect to hear are a hip-hop MC who merges academia and linguistics into his work, a bizarrist who swallows coat hangers and can paint pictures inside of his stomach. Yeah, as mad as that sounds, it's a thing. Uh, We're talking to the former director of one of, if not my favourite museum of all time, the Museum of Broken Relationships. We're going to be talking to a doctor who has overcome incredible mental and physical obstacles to reinvigorate a a lifelong dream of skydiving that has just lit a fire within him and has led him to doing over 100 skydives. That in itself is is kind of a life-changing conversation, I think, in a lot of ways. We're going to be talking to a man who communicates with beings called the Golden Ones. Again, that's a thing. And... um, Yeah, we're going to be looking at my first experience in a rage room, along with some strange and curious internet finds, which leads me to next week's episode. It's going to be a bit of a diversion, something not so serious, something a lot more sillier than uh, religious trauma. We're going to be looking at what has been classed as the weirdest websites of 2022. So if you enjoyed the previous episode we've done, where I dived into my To Watch Later playlist and pulled out some strange but hopefully fascinating topics um, from 
YouTube or you've enjoyed the episode where I looked at LHOHQ or the Caretaker Project, every, everything at the end of time. I think that's what it's called. Basically, if you're into, into strange, curious, fascinating internet stuff, then uh, or just silly bollocks, basically, then next week's episode is very much for you. So yeah, eclectic and diverse, right? I try and keep it interesting for you and for me and for anybody else that is kind enough to even just take the time to listen to this. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it is interesting, and and hopefully, if I mean, if you've made it this far, if you've made it through three seasons of the show, if you've made it through what sixty episodes, then uh, you obviously like something about it. So I, I genuinely genuinely appreciate it and on that note as always thank you for listening look after yourselves look after each other and until next time when we dive into some truly bizarre elements of the internet keep it dimed out Oh.